Does the field of communication and media studies have an identity crisis? Is this crisis local or global? Does it apply to a particular region or country, or does it seem to pop up you know, in the many different places around the world where the field has become an important part of the academic infrastructure? About this and many other fascinating topics is this conversation with Sebastián Valenzuela of Pontificia Universidad Católica in Santiago de Chile in this episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am thrilled to have with me today on the screen uh, my dear friend Sebastián Valenzuela, who is Associate Professor at the School of Communications at the Pontificia Universidad Católica in Santiago de Chile, where he's also Director of Research. Sebastián is also Associate Researcher at the Millennium Institute for Foundational Research on Data. He did his undergraduate at Católica, the place where he works now in Chile and his master and PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, Sebastián is an expert in, in the areas of political communication, public opinion, journalism studies, new media. He's truly one of the foremost experts in Latin America on all of these topics. He's, he's been incredibly productive. He has 45 journal articles in the leading uh, journals of the field with almost 15,000 citations. He's getting his PhD less than a decade ago. Uh, in addition to that, he just published the third edition of Setting the Agenda, the news media and public opinion with the legendary Max McCombs, and has received a number of awards, including top citation awards uh, for uh, his research. So Sebastian, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Pablo, for that presentation. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. It's truly my pleasure. Um, so, Sebastian, how did it all begin? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? So, um, I studied journalism as an undergrad. And for five or six years after graduation, I worked uh, at the Mercurio newspaper here in Santiago is this traditional conservative leading daily. And um, I used to work in the business section. And in the business section, you get to interview many people, of course, uh, including policymakers. And often it would happen that uh, as a journalist, as a reporter, I would be asking the questions. But at some point, I must say, 
I started to wonder whether um, I wanted to remain asking questions rather than provide answers to those questions. And it started to happen that um, actually got tired of asking other people's questions. As I said at some point, I want to be the expert uh, that wants to be interviewed and provide answers. The problem is that when you study journalism, you're not really an expert at anything in terms of a disciplinary field. So I was at a, um, was kind of a catch-22. I, I studied a field, um, I was doing what I was expected to do, but I wanted to be on the other side of the microphone, if that makes any sense. So naturally, um, uh, I thought that going to grad school um, would be kind of a, a way of getting away from my job, have a good excuse to get away from a, a good paying job as a journalist, but um, kind of reinvent myself. I was going only for a master's. I had no intention of becoming a scholar as, you know, uh, in terms of like a full-time academic. I wanted to be someone who, when I would come back with my degree, I would be able to do some consulting work or maybe work part-time journalist and part-time something else. But um, after finishing my first semester in, in Austin as a, as a master's student, uh, it became readily apparent that I wanted to, I mean, this was the life I was looking like. This is the life, like there was something called a PhD. I had no idea what a PhD was. Um, and then one thing led to another and I stayed in the end for six years, finishing my master's first and then the PhD. So, so why Texas Austin for your master's? I mean, what was the journey? So, yeah. yeah. Well, um, there was one thing I knew for sure. I wanted to do my, my degree in the, in the US or in Canada, but in North America, uh, that was, uh, kind of narrowing down my choices. I didn't want to go to Europe as a student. I thought it was too expensive. Uh, and there were more funding opportunities for uh, going to the US. I had a Fulbright scholarship and everything. But then I had to, to pick a university. And um, when, I, when, I, when I was in the process of deciding, Max McCombs came to Chile invited by um, I don't remember who invited him. It was not my university, not Catolica, but someone, a foundation invited him, I think, to give a talk or something. And my girlfriend at the time, who's not my girlfriend anymore because it's not my wife, no, but my girlfriend at the time, uh, she was working in this organization and she said, why don't you, you speak English? Why don't you offer yourself to be a guide tour in Santiago of Max Macombs? And I barely remember his name for a class I took in intro to communication theory as an undergrad uh, on agenda setting. Anyway, Max came, that's how I met him. I met him as a, I was a journalist and um, I had the time in a weekend to, you know, walk him around and I had topics in common like news stuff. Um, anyway, I told him I wanted to study at some point in, 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 in the US and he said, why don't you come to Texas? You know, I, there's a bunch of us who study political communication, and it seems that you would like that. And that was it. But then uh, when I was applying, Texas was one of my choices. Other universities, they were all located either in California or in the southern belt. 
because one thing I didn't I did know was that I uh, didn't want I didn't want to sustain you know to suffer actually uh, the Midwestern winter. So all the universities in the Midwest, including Northwestern, unfortunately, they were to me forbidden. Not because anything of the university, but they said I'm not uh, I'm not going to be able to uh, you know whether there's no one or that. So that was that was kind of my, the, the the whole point. And then. I ended in Texas because I was accepted there in other universities and I knew Max and Max was like the big scholar. And I said, might be smart to <laughs> work under his, you know, um, guidance and, and that's it. Yeah. And I don't regret it. We, we, I had a lot of fun there. Absolutely. I mean, he, he's a giant and, you know, UT Austin has an incredible program in all things communication related. So, so how was, the experience of being a Latin American student in a U.S. university like UT Austin. When I did my so when when I started my masters in two thousand five, um, I would say that in the communication and the, in the journalism uh, school. Uh, in Texas, most of the students were um, Americans or uh, Asian students, right? There were few Latin American students. So uh, in my department, so in our department, few Latin Americans, so in a way that was um, a different experience to me because now you would feel like actually a minority, right? Um, but Austin and the university and the city, and for that matter, the state of Texas, they have a huge, you know, influx of uh, uh, immigrants from Latin America, particularly Mexico. And of course, you also have the local Mexican American population. So uh, in that sense, Spanish would be a language, for example, that you would hear everywhere all the time. Um, in the university, outside the university, and when you would move around the city. And in that sense, it made it for a very, um, I would say, comfortable kind of context. Um, there was a, a group of South Americans actually in the university that we would get together. They were from different fields and we would uh, socialize a lot. Like you would see it was kind of a click. But I would say that in general, it was, uh, a time that was very welcoming. I would. I, I, I don't think I experienced during my time there the the animosity towards foreigners, for example, that I started to uh, that I felt when I went back to the U.S. Uh, in 2018 for a year um, uh, for my sabbatical in Madison in Wisconsin, and and. Talking to different colleagues, the question would be, yeah, things have changed here. And, and, and in that sense, I look back now and I would say, um, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel at a time that we were being looked with suspicions, even in a, in a conservative state like Texas. Now, Austin, of course, is kind of a bubble, uh, politically speaking. But even when you would go you know, up to the countryside, uh, um, 
in general, Texans are very welcoming. And, and, and you would say that, that you know, in, in, those, in, that, in that sense, my experiences were, were, were very positive, my, 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 the way I remember it. Uh, and that's very different from, as I said, when we came back with my whole family to, to Madison, to Wisconsin. There you would feel, not in the city, of course, but in the state in general, and I would say in the country, kind of a, a different, something had changed. Why, first of all, how did that change manifest? And, and why do you think that's the case? I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are. I think it's part of, um, it's part of the increasing polarization and division that the U.S. has experienced over the past 10 years. I mean, radicalized, of course, after Trump became president. But, but I would say that uh, there's this general process of divisions, of identities clashing and expressing themselves, and identities that have been hidden in a way, right? Like white nationalism, all that you, you thought or I thought it was more on the on the fringes of society in, in the American society, they seem not to be that much. And I think in that process of fighting or division, of course, something like being an immigrant or being a foreigner, it's a very salient aspect. It's just, just a matter of you know, opening your mouth in my case, right? You'd say, Hi, how are you? Where are you from? <laughs> right. Uh, so I think it's 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 in a way I would say the the animus against immigrants is part of this larger process of differentiation and sorting that I think the U.S. has been experiencing. And 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 it's different, of course, when you study it than when you experience it. For example, we were in a supermarket in Madison. And um, with my wife, and and something happened that we had never actually experienced before, which was that we were uh, speaking in Spanish, and then there's this man that approaches my wife, and he just kind of went ballistic. He just started to you know uh, scream and you know throw insults and stuff go back to your country or whatever. And, and it's kind of what, what you read in the news and now it's like, um, and it's, I, I don't know, uh, I don't know the origins, but I would say it's part of that. He was wearing a, a red cap. I don't know if the words were there, make America great again, but it was kind of the proffer, right? I'm sorry to hear about that. Um... I'm not surprised as somebody who's been here and lives here um, from over a quarter of a century, but I'm still sorry. Um, have you seen comparable trends in the field of communication and media studies when you go to conferences? Um, uh, in particular, and in general, what has been your experience as a scholar from Latin America who works in Latin America and whose research is mostly on Latin America. Um, what has been your experience of being mm. part of a global field? So uh, 
there's been a very interesting change over this past decade when, when I graduated and started my, my career as, a, as, a, as an assistant professor to, to the stage where I'm at right now. Um, and it has been, in that sense, a positive experience. When I started my work, when I just came back from the U.S. and I uh, was already finishing the papers I was doing with data collected in the U.S., but I was starting to collect data here in Chile, for example, and, and also in Colombia with uh, Hernando Rojas and other friends. When, we be, when I began doing that work, um, we, we had a concern when, 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 when we were trying to get our work out there, not so much in conference, but more in journals, for example, that um, we had to, in a way, kind of excuse ourselves for doing our work in Latin America, right? Uh, it's like, we, 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 you would see this in, in a number of ways, it would manifest itself, but one of them would be like having uh, many paragraphs in the paper explaining the context in a way that it's great now that I read it to have a contextualized studies, but it's something that was never asked for people doing work um, in the global north, right? Um, you would also see it when uh, reviewers, for example, were wondering, that's very interesting. Is it applicable here, right? Like the, the idea that because you do a study in a particular, it's it's never applicable, uh, and it's like two extremes. On the one hand, they want you to contextualize everything because it's not applicable anywhere, and then it's like we don't know the value because maybe it's only applicable to different double standards, right? So um, we would experience that. I would experience in my cohorts that idea, kind of not so subtle sometimes, um, but I think. Um, after a few years, there's been a very interesting turn uh, in the field, or at least I have experienced that, where um, actually you start to perceive that the work you're doing is, is, is welcome, is actually appreciated and promoted. And, and this takes, again, many different uh, forms. One of them is like with... Uh, editors, conferences, reviewers asking for work done in new or marginalized context. And that's one way. But also um, in terms of just appreciating um, a larger field, like, like, like moving the laboratory of, of available cases to different places. And, um, uh, and one last thing. There's this pressure somehow in many countries in the global north uh, to demonstrate some level of internationalization, either because of rankings, because of I don't know what. We've been uh, lucky in a way to be benefited because of that. Like I'm positive I've been invited to serve in editorial boards, uh, not because of the work I've done in that particular area that merits, you know, but it's more because they found out the editors that their editorial board was all based in one country or in two countries they need to expand. And when they're looking for people to invite over, they say there's these people from Chile and from Argentina and Colombia, and, you know, they open you the door and then you demonstrate that not only are you doing very relevant and important work, but you also teach them 
to be more open and more receptive to other worlds. And I think that's enable kind of a very positive virtue circle where, um, of course, differences and double standards might remain, but I would say that the context is much more supportive. Um, and, and I say this with, you know, after at some, I mean, I say this now having experienced it, but I would be inaccurate if I would say that when I graduated and we decided with my wife to move back to Chile and start a career in academia here, that we that we were not concerned about that. I mean, we we thought um, even some professors would say, one of them told us, and I'm going to say her name. She said, "Oh, you're going back to Chile. I'm so sorry." Basically saying, "We lost you, right?" And each day I publish something or I get invited something, I always think about her and I say, "Here we are." Yeah. Good for you. Now, what you are describing then are two trends that go in a somewhat opposite direction um, in the US. And it's probably fair to say in other um, advanced economies, uh, countries in the global north, there has been an overall trend towards polarization, you know, Great Britain um, being another case that is obvious with Brexit. And also you see the return of the right in Europe, uh, even in places like Germany. Um, and that comes usually with increasing polarization. Now, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the field becoming perhaps not entirely equitable, um, uh, but still at least more aware of its own uh, ethnocentrism and trying to, to some extent, uh, you know, change things. So why do you think society is moving in one direction and the field in another? I'm curious. That's a, about an interesting way of putting it. I hadn't thought about it. Um, that, um, that they're moving in different directions. I think um, academia and, and you know universities have always been at some point at the vanguard of you know, trends, I think they were giving back in the day room, space for women uh, to get a higher education or to get degrees, to study fields that were only for men before, way before gender equity was an issue in politics and way before, um, I don't know, um, legalizing women's vote, right? Uh, so I don't think in that sense, I'm terribly surprised about that, right? Um, on the other hand, particularly in the, in the US, for example, uh, the world usually laughs at uh, Americans' lack of awareness of international trends, about their ISO, you know, being so isolated or ethnocentric, right? Everyone, particularly the French, like to make fun of that, right? They're not sophisticated. But see, I well, of course, that's, a, that's, that's an exaggeration, but I don't think that that applied to universities in general. I would say that my experience and the experience my friends from, you know, who have done or work there that come from different uh, international backgrounds, um, 
they have, you know, they have perceived that universities are a very welcoming environment. That's where you find, you know, the most connected or more world-versed Americans are thinking at the universities. Um, so in that sense, I, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm that surprised. And in the end, I think there's another thing. Globalization, part of that, we can talk more, you know, for days about that, but what is globalization? But one thing that is pretty clear is that traveling and learning about different realities is much easier now than before. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, that poses a threat to people who have a more nativistic you know, outlook, right? But they are nativistic or ethnocentric, not because they're ethnocentric per se, they are as a response to the threat they perceive from being in a more open globalized world. So maybe it's not despite this ethnocentric turn that you know a segment of you know of, of, of the global north has you know is turning to. It's not despite that that universities are, are looking you know um, abroad. But it's actually maybe in part of it because of it, right? Uh, anyway, that's a very, it's something that we, we need to pay attention to. I would say that I never, I, I wouldn't confuse uh, the country or the state of the country in general with what happens in universities. I think there we are sometimes in different scales in this sense, in a positive way. I don't think universities have turned, or my experience, you know, with the ones I know in the U.S., for example, uh, have have taken this nativistic, you know, uh, turn that I've seen in parts of, you know, the citizenry. Okay, and very interesting. So going back to to the moment in which you, or the process of, you know, going back to Chile after your PhD at UT Austin. Um, did the change in location you think affected or shaped or influenced your research program? Choice of topics, methods, questions, issues. I mean, there is the obvious aspect that you are in Chile, so you're collecting Chilean data, for instance, right? Um, but, but beyond that, do you think if at all the location has shaped um, what you study and how you study it? And in, if so, in which ways? No, definitely, definitely. And I would say three things. So the first one, it influences the, the, the co-authors you have. I've always been of the idea that to succeed in academia, not, in, not actually to succeed, survive in academia, you, you, you have to be part of a team. You have to, have, uh, you have to be a teammate, a team member. Uh, doing solo work is not very productive. And actually, particularly in my case, I've never liked it. I only have few solo author pieces just to demonstrate I can do work by myself. But if I can pre prevent it, um, I will. So depending on where you are, in this case in Chile, I, I you know, um, I met new colleagues and where I strengthened links with people that um, I knew before going to grad school or when I was in grad school. Um, and that has an influence because the work you do is not only the work you think, but also the work that you do with the other people, right? So, so that would be one influence. The second one would be uh, 
in the kind of topics you decide to do research. When I finished my grad school, of course, I was influenced by what was happening, particularly in the U.S. after the 2008 U.S. election, where everyone was uh, startled with the with, with the role that social networks and, and social media played in that election, and like everyone was started to do research in in in, in this medium, and. Um, so when I came back to Chile, I said, okay, we need to do the same. But rapidly, I kind of faced the fact that, of course, social media was important too in Chile, but in different ways, and traditional media remains very important. Um, so it's not my most well-known work, but I did work, for example, in a number of years doing work on uh, on on TV news and the role of television and stuff that, you know, I wouldn't have uh, conducted research if, if, it not, if, if, if it wasn't because I was here in Chile and I was perceiving that that was important to do. And the third element would be um, the fact that being in Chile, you have access to resources that you don't have access to in other places, right? Not Chile particularly. I'm saying countries outside, uh, you know, the global north. Um, you have less funding, but more funding. So maybe the number of or institutions providing funding or the amount of funding that they give you compared to what you would get in, in Europe or in Western Europe or in, or, or in North America, maybe it's, it's, it's less, but... Uh, you have more access to it because the pool of people applying to these uh, funds is, is, is smaller. Uh, so I was able to carry, for example, large-scale surveys that they would have been uh, impossible to conduct in, in the U.S. just because of a matter of costs and, and, and lack of money. Um, um, and again, as I said, it's a, it's it's... I mean, I would say that third element has played a big part because I've been able to think about doing projects uh, where the restrictions in terms of funding are very different from my colleagues, um, people in my cohort, for example, in Texas, then, then got a job, a tenure track job in the US and we would have conversations where I would say, what are you doing? I'm doing this study and this. And they would be like, wow, you know, you, you got money. And it's like, not, I'm nowhere not rich, but you can do more with less here and you have access to it. So that, of course, has influenced a lot because it, it depends on the kind of... Um, one example would be, and with this I finish, is that I used to do a lot of secondary analysis when I was a grad student. Not, not only because I was a grad student, because a lot of my professors in the U.S. were doing that. Uh, here, I get to do a lot of original field work. And part of it is because uh, I have funding, access to funding that I would have, and, you know, if I had stayed in the US. Really interesting. So, so that's one aspect of academic life. How about working with students? Because not everybody in the US and the global north might be familiar with, um, for sure you teach classes, which you know people do in other countries. Um, but how is the possibility of working with graduate students uh, at Católica and in Chile in general? Yeah, that's something that compared to what I was saying in my earlier response uh, has been kind of a challenge, more, much more challenging. 
usually because what happens is that the good students, good undergrad students that uh, might, you know, become great grad students, most likely they're going to go abroad to do their grad school work rather than stay in Chile. So we have this situation where, in general, our undergrad students uh, are much better than our grad students, I say as a country in general, which is kind of interesting. Um, for example, I've done a lot of my research when I had to hire um, assistants, for example, coders for a content analysis, I hire undergrads rather than grad students. Part of it is because also grad students who, taste, who, who, who stay here in Chile to do their graduate degree, they also have to manage um, a job or a work. So it's not that they don't have the quality to do or the capacities, the abilities. It's just that they also don't have the time to do additional work from their coursework, right? So I would say that's kind of the general challenge for, um, this has been for me to, to, to work with a large group of graduate students, that, that's kind of the problem you have, that they don't have the time oftentimes to do your work, which is kind of, um, it sounds crazy, right? I mean, so grad students are supposed to work with your professors. They do, but what if you have part-time students, right? And many of them are part-time students. I would say the other challenge though, is that um, before 2012, there were no PhD programs in communication in Chile, zero. There were a lot of masters. Uh, ours was the first. So we started in Catholic in 2012, and that has been a great experience. It's a very small program. We only uh, admit a few students because we have capacities to train a few of them. But um, every year we have four or five incoming students, many of them from other Latin American countries. And that has been great, but it's a new program, 2012. So we all we have graduate students, I mean, students who have graduated already, but I would say that in five to 10 years, that thing is gonna, I, I expect to grow. In the meantime, two other universities have created here in Chile, PhD programs in communication. So I think um, we're starting to build, you know, uh, the structure to, to have a decent, um, grad to grad um, education in, in communication. But as I say, it's something we're building as part of the thrills, but also the challenges of, of being based here in, in Chile. Sure. So what's the, the labor market for these graduates? So do they go work in academia in Chile? Do they go work in academia elsewhere? Do they work in the public sector, in the private sector? So, um, most of them actually go to uh, work in academia, but, but because half of them usually are from countries outside Chile, um, they go back to their home country and, and work in the universities there. The rest, those who stay here in Chile, usually are students who are starting their careers as part-time lecturers or adjuncts, professors or something, then they want to go up in the ladder of tenure and so forth. Uh, but the universities where they work, which tend to be small private universities or um, public universities that are located in outside Santiago, so in more uh, peripheral cities, 
um, um, the, you know, they they asked these students to, okay, if you get your PhD, then we're going to, you know, offer you uh, either a full-time position or something. So, so far, I would say um, those who stay in Chile, all of them, um, after graduation, have when you know have gone back to work in academia um but there's an interest recently we started to perceive an interest of people applying for the phd program um to work also in the private sector or in the public sector private sector meaning they want to they for example they already work in a big advertising agency and they're working in the research marketing area of the agency, but they don't have the knowledge and they think that maybe a PhD, uh, not that we're getting, that they have been applying or showing some interest, but we have to sort it out because in the end, it's also a program of four years and um, it might be sometimes complicated for them to be on leave for four years uh, and then go back. Um, uh, and then we have one former student who actually works in the public sector. He, 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 he did his PhD and then he works in communications, but in an agency in the government. Yeah, but so, most of them academia, yeah. So is the program funded? So do they get funded by scholarships? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the Chilean government through the CONICIT, well, now they changed the name of the agency. Now it's called ANIF. Well, the national scientific body, they fund uh, scholarships for doing PhDs here in Chile and also abroad, property you stay in Chile. So I would say half of our students get this um, uh, uh, funding from, the, from this national body. And then for those who don't, the university uh, provides partial funding. Unfortunately, we don't have the funds to give them like full, fully, you know, full, full funding. Um, so some of them, particularly those students who don't get fully funded, they have to do some kind of part-time work. Sometimes we hire them again in our research projects, and we, but but it's not as settled the system as it is in the at least in research one universities in the U.S. that I know. It's not like um, the number of students you accept depends on the funding, and if you are accepted, these are the conditions. It's like it's it's more variable here. Like it was some years, all are funded. Other years, not so much. And yeah, so it varies. But it's a new institution, so to speak. So it's bound to change, most likely. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, it's kind of in the making, everything, a lot of it. But we have the experience of a lot of the people who run these programs have been trained abroad and know how it works. So at least we kind of agree where it should go, right? Um, but often the problem, as I say, is that students actually, for example, um, either they can't or they don't want to be full-time students. They want to be part-time students. So some of them might have the expectation of doing a PhD, but they have kind of the mindset of doing a master's. And that's not really it. So, you know, explaining that and, and, and justifying, like, why do you need to do a program for um, four or five years? It's been sometimes, you know, kind of a, a work of, of, of um, getting 
people to better understand the nature of a PhD. This is not like a, a master's program on steroids. It, it's a different thing, right? Okay. Now, we've talked about your own career. We've talked about um, your experience in the US, going back to Chile. Um, we've talked about the field and your experience of the field changing over time and your experience being part of an institution in the making, right? So taking into account the, the spectrum of things that we talked about, um, if you have magical powers and could be granted one wish about something that you would like, you know, for it to change, either in the field of communication and media studies, um, maybe in, uh, or, you know, in, in, in the, the field in Chile, um, um, what would that be? What would you wish for? If I would get magical powers. So um, I was thinking about this question when, when I was listening to another podcast of yours with Hernando Rojas and um, The one thing that came to my mind was that we're still wrestling as, you know, as communication scholars here in Chile, in the U.S., elsewhere, with the um, kind of an identity crisis. We, we think that we need to validate ourselves as a field with the other social sciences. We debate between ourselves about what is communication, what it's not. Our good friend, Silvio Weisberg wrote and published uh, a superb book on this, like idea of communication, a post-discipline. But if I would have the magic wand, I would say somehow we become into agreement of what we are and what we, we, we are not or maybe we come into agreement that we don't need to care about what we are. But I would say that in a way, I would like for us to uh, be recognized by funding bodies, by the other social sciences as a social science by itself. Um, and that everyone recognizes what you do when you say you are a communication scholar, which is something that I have to wrestle every day. It's like, my friends who are political scientists, oh yeah, political scientists, you know. Those who are economists, oh, of course. Yeah. Sociologists even. And then you say communication is like, it makes sense. So what do you do? Why do you need a PhD in communication? And um, when you talk with a more learned audience, say NGOs, think tanks, foundations and stuff, um, you might get sometimes, you know, um, questions about like, are you incorporating uh, in your group for your proposal, uh, you know, people from the hard sciences or the social, kind of saying, you guys communication, I don't really know what you guys do. And, uh, you're not validated in a way, right? Like what you do. So I would say that, that would be great. And I think part of it is not because others don't recognize, but because we, as I said, we have kind of an identity crisis. We don't really know what we do. I mean, we know what we do in our, in our very 
define you know uh, niche field, but uh, there's not an agreement, for example, of like not even the names of the institutions we work. Are we a school of communication, communications, communications and and media, communications and journalism, journalism? We don't even agree upon a name, uh, and that's fine. You know, we can all we all have personal opinions about what's what we should do that we need to wrestle with this complexity i'm not arguing against you know the merits of one proposal or the other what i'm arguing is like have a magic one to everyone agrees what it is and we move over that and everyone recognizes this field and we move on we move on as a well-defined and we are perceived as relevant as other fields and all that. that would be something that would be applicable not only here in Chile or in Latin America or in the US, but it would be like worldwide. Um, that when people say, are you going to the International Communication Association's annual meeting? They say, you don't get the question, um, what do you do there? What's that? You know, that would be my my wish. That would be your wish. So, so let me follow up quickly on that. So. What, what you're describing is a, a, if I may rephrase it, a, a constant crisis of self-worth, right? Um, That's a good way of putting it. Okay, so so it seems to be less about what this is um, and uh, perhaps together with that, or even more so, what is it worth for, right? Um, so, so do you see that since you've had the advantage of, you know, being in the South, but you were part of the North and you are a very, very well-cited and prominent scholar who travels constantly um, and, and have, you, you, you hold important positions like in Social Science One, you are the head of the Latin American um, component of that. So, so do you think that crisis of self-worth is equally prominent in the South and in the North, more of the North, more of the South? What's your take on that? Um, if you attend my faculty meetings, <laughs> you, would say, you would be in agreement with me that it's everywhere it's the same. Okay. Um, I, I I was lucky enough to participate in faculty meetings when I was in Wisconsin, and and the kind of conversations we had there that I heard actually because I was kind of more of a witness than a participant uh, would be very similar to the kind of conversation we have about this topic in here in Chile, um, and it manifests again in so many ways in terms of the things we think that ought to be taught to our undergrad students or the emphasis of our grad program. Uh, when you we need to hire a new colleague, what kind of colleague are we gonna hire? Um, um, I, I, if anything, I, I wouldn't say it's different in terms of the amount of, or how salient this debate is, it might take particular forms here in 
you know, in this part of the world that is different from from your part of the world. But I would say it's, you know, it, it it's pretty universal. I would say. Um, one example: uh, journalism, right? So everyone talks about the future of journalism. Is it journalism? Is it information? Is it is it uh, the other day I was reading on Twitter, Jay Rosen um, saying that he was in disagreement with most journalists who say that the what defines the profession is storytelling. He said, I can find five or six different traits that are more important than storytelling, like fact checking. or. And it was so funny because I was reading Jay Rosen, whose audience is New York or, New, you know, um, news-oriented people or, or right in, in the us or news grid or future of journalism types right uh and that same day i had a discussion in in a faculty council you know it's about um uh the future of journalism what is it storytelling no it's not i, I don't know if they had read also Jerusalem, but i did and it was like very different universes at the same time with the same problem, right? And that's only with journalism. I mean, expanded to communication in general. And but it's as I said, it's interesting because that that hasn't prevented the field from being much more important now than it was before. It's like uh, I'm part of an institute that has a very awkward name, Foundational Research on Data. But basically, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's a bunch of computer scientists who are interested in understanding. Uh, uh, social media and social networks in general and, um, and data privacy and those sorts of issues. And in, in computer science, we're uh, limited to understand these, these society-wide phenomenon. And, and they invited a group of social scientists um, to join them. And they invited us. And it's, it's interesting because it used to be that us in the humanities or in the social sciences, we would be inviting, you know, the hard sciences to, to help us in doing something. And it's now completely the other way around. Uh, so even if we have these debates, that doesn't mean that we are more prominent now than before. And I think uh, the development of technologies and all that has helped a lot to put our field kind of a more fashionable field. But I think there's a problem when that attention paid to the field, people who don't know the field, they invite us, and then they start to figure out that not that we have all sorts of disagreements and all sorts of, um, you know, uh, identity this identity crisis. Oh, I'm a journalist. No, I'm not a journalist. I'm, I'm a rhetorician. You know, and I'm like, okay, but but like, we don't even we don't even know what to teach. We don't even have a canon. Like. Political scientists do have a kind. Of, oh, I'm a comparativist. Oh, I'm a theorist. I'm a, and we're not that because we're not even a discipline. We are a bunch of different disciplines. But anyway, I think you get the point. So um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a worldwide phenomenon. <laughs> this crisis. <laughs> all right, all right. And on that, uh, we are going to bring this episode of El Café Latinx uh, to an end. Thank you so much, Sebastian for an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for our listeners, uh, to our listeners for uh, staying with us. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you. Thank you, Pablo.
Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcicki, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.